Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 499 for December 25th, 2022. Welcome back. And next week is the big week. It's a big week, I know. It's kind of impressive to me. We need that. We need some sort of a party to happen, you know. <laughs> we maybe blow some some noisemakers or something, or you know, shake some of those little platter things, whatever they're called, next week. Yeah, that's five hundred hours of new content. Probably more. Some days we have more than an hour. New content every week. So yeah, uh, thank you guys for sticking with us. Uh, this week we'll talk to actor, writer, director Blaine Weaver. We finished the interview we started with him last week. Uh, and he is a local actor from Shreveport who, you know, uh, comes back to Louisiana to film quite often. So I think more permanently located out in L.A., but uh, keeps his ties to North Louisiana uh, current. So we'll be uh, enjoying uh, talking to him in a few minutes. But first, this week in Louisiana history... So this week in Louisiana history, on December uh, 10th, 1810, the area of West Florida, the Florida parishes, was annexed by the United States and Louisiana. And, of course, this is, uh, was this our governor or, the, or that, that governor, uh, Full War Skipwith? Yes, was, Full War Skipwith. Who, uh, yeah, he went to war with, with what was left of the Spanish Empire in America, I guess, or at least yeah. in the southeast. Well, and, um, you know, three months later after Full War declared independence, the United States sent uh, Claiborne up there to claim it for the United States, which is fine. Full War went on to be a Congress person. But uh, the point is, how many governors can you think who have actually conquered a territory and <laughs> annexed it to the United States? Uh, yeah. You know, there were some brothers, um, Reuben, and I can't think of the other two, uh, the or two or three got, uh, brothers with the Kempers. And I think we talked yeah. about we was it our friend Bruce Kraft maybe, but we talked about somebody or talked with somebody, and that, those two, those three fellows, I guess their names came up in the conversation. We ought to try to do something on those campers. I know our, the name is ringing a bell very loudly, but I've forgotten. Well, one dies over in your parents' old home state of Mississippi, but they they were living in Louisiana, and they I think they were filibusters as well, so they were kind of right. very controversial figures, but they are. They're really important in early Louisiana history, and particularly under the, you know, the, under the American uh, regime. So we ought to do something about them at some point. For people who've only heard of the filibuster in terms of the Senate, back in the day, a lot of kind of mercenary groups would get together. Yeah. A lot of times in New Orleans, and plot the overthrow of some uh, government and go off on a filibustering expedition, and uh, mostly they lost. But occasionally, you know, like uh, West uh, Florida. And, Texas. They got what they were trying to get. Yeah. Uh, now for this week in New Orleans history, um, Eddie Jones, December 10th, 1926, then February 7th, 1959, better known as Guitar Slim. He was a New Orleans blues guitarist uh, in the 40s and 50s, best known for the million-selling song, The Things I Used to Do. Yeah, so Downloading today or watch him on the YouTube. Yeah, there, yeah, there should be some of his stuff on YouTube, I would imagine. Oh, I would bet. Now for this week in Louisiana, 
So this week in Louisiana, we profile the Grant Christmas Tree Farm and Syrup Mill at 716 Whitaker Road in Grant, Louisiana. Uh, it says here, are you looking for a fun place to pick out your Christmas tree this year? Grant Christmas Tree Farm in Grant, Louisiana is just the place. Established in 1983, families can come and enjoy the great selection of trees, tag your favorite, and have the friendly staff cut and prepare to go home, prepare the tree rather to go home with you. The on-site uh, gift shop offers homemade jams, jellies, candy, and other yummy treats that might make the perfect gift for that hard-to-buy-for person in your life, too. There's something for everyone at Grant's Christmas Tree Farm. Uh, there is a phone number, 318-634-3408, and there's a website. You yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at the website. Now, the um, address of the farm is 716 Whitaker Road in Grant, Louisiana, and then right below it, in big, bold uh, letters in italics, we are not located on 17030 Highway 10, Pitkin, Louisiana. So don't go there. <laughs> I have never seen that before. Is this uh, um, in Grant Parish? Is that where this is, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to see if I can find a a map here that might show where it is. It's in Was Allen that? Parish. Okay. Oh wow, it's way down south. And well, it, well, it's further south. It's not way down south. It's still. Let's see. I'm Ele- looking below Alexander. Okay. Well, these are humongous trees. Okay. So uh, right, go down there. Uh, don't go to the wrong investment. Sure, you go to the right one. <laughs> uh, and now for this week's postcard from Louisiana. Uh, I listened to Hobo Gadget Junk Band in New Orleans.
song was that? Thank you. Uh, you this may will... leave uh, by the Memphis Jug Band. Cool. And what do y'all call your group? Uh, the Hobo Gadget Drunk Band. The yes. Hogo, Hobo Gadget Drunk Band. You sound tight. You look like Shay Cohen. Pretty soon it'll be the drunk. Shay Cohen, she's the lead singer and trumpet player and tuba skinny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was like, God. Because she plays, they started out on the straight years ago. Yeah. Y'all sound good. Thank you. Do you record them? Uh, I was taking pictures. I don't, but they're okay. all over the internet. Yeah, that's not you, though? You saw me in one? Oh, no, I was just wondering if it was you that records one. Oh, no. 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 I'm not that good. Usually the people that post it on YouTube, they have better equipment than I do. But you'll see, look up Tuba Skinny, they're all over the place. Like, yeah, I haven't seen it for a they started, you would find them on Royal, they play at DBA a lot for their town. No, they, they all raised me and shit. But they're not in town right now. No, they're on, they're on tour. Yeah, they're on the road. They, they all watched me grow up. How long have y'all been doing this? Not long with us, but him and I have been doing a little longer. Cool. Like a year. We just joined in like a year, like three months. Us. Maybe two months. Keep going. You sound good. Thank Also, you have the the people, even that are working in, I don't want to call them ancillary uh, areas, but, I mean, they're doing everything from lighting to, to scoring. Uh, you know, they're writing the scores to these things. I mean, folks that just go and watch a film or they go and, and stream it online, they don't realize, a lot of them, at least if they're casual viewers, they don't realize the incredible amount of work and, and all of the different disciplines that have to go into uh, just something simple like a commercial, much less a TV show or a, a big screen, you know, film. I mean, it's really we, – Bruce and I had a guy that taught a lot of us at Tech. He's a musician, a, a Bach scholar, J.S. Bach uh, scholar, and also a scholar of traditional jazz. But on the side, he was an amateur film scholar. And he hmm. had, at that time, back in the 80s, he had close to a 1,000 films in his personal collection, which was unheard of in North Louisiana. This was in a private collection here in North Louisiana, right here in Ruston. This guy had well, all that before VHS tapes. What he just some oh, of it, yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, he started his collection, I think, in the '60s when it was on a reel to reel. You know, you had eight millimeter and super eight uh, film stock, and eventually, yeah, he moved to video. And at the very last part of his, you know, collection, right before he died, he started buying DVDs. This is by the late '90s, early 2000s, I think, late '90s. And he had a copy of Wings, the first Academy Award winner, when it was a bootleg. You could not have that thing in the United States. It's still in the copyright. He had a copy. It was probably the only copy in North Louisiana or South Arkansas, East Texas, probably South Oklahoma, too. It was it. He had a copy right. of that. Just all kinds of really exotic stuff that he was having to go to, you know, I say go, but he was buying by mail order in South America. A lot of this stuff where it was not copyrighted still and having it shipped up here to the States. And so that guy taught us when I was a kid and three or four other friends would go to the house on Fridays and Saturdays and watch film, you know, classic films from the 20s up to about the 60s. And this guy's knowledge of film, for for him not to be, you know, as I said, he was a music scholar, but for him to have learned all this stuff on his own about film was pretty phenomenal. And he would share this with us each week. He would tell us, you know, pay attention to the lighting or to the 
you know, to the camera work or to the score. So see, and, the, and that that stuff he knew well, being a, a music you know a music scholar, but he would tell us to pay attention to various aspects of the film on top of the obvious stuff like the acting and the scripting, because all of it yeah. comes together like a, like an orchestral piece, really, where every you know every member of the orchestra, whether it's a horn or a woodwind or a string or a percussion or whatever, they all play a role. And the film is very similar in that regard, as is, you know, say, a choral work or a band work or something where everybody's got a role to play, and they're all working or should be working at least towards the same goal of interpreting that piece of music. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, it was just incredible what this guy knew. I mean, just absolutely, you know, symbolism, because films use symbolism just like a literary work does. And he would tell us to pay attention to the symbolism in the film, you know, what what do the symbols, you know, uh, mean. And, of course, he... Being a scholar, being a professor at Tech, he knew some of the things to look for that the average viewer would not even begin to look for. And it really helped us to understand film, but also to appreciate the, the work that had gone into the text of the film. Yeah. Well, you know, I always say that, you know, film is uh, a collaborative art, and if you don't realize that, then you're in the wrong place. You know, yes. it's like yeah. everybody... Everybody has to do their – and the great thing about being on a big-budget movie, you know, is you stand on the set of a big-budget movie, and everyone there is at the top of their game. You know, they're they're being paid to be the best at what they can do right there, you know. And the fun thing about independent film is that everybody has something to learn, you know, and mm-hmm. but you're all just trying together to make the best product possible. So – um, I, I have a – there's a gentleman named James Eakin who's a uh, composer and he's a know. professor. You know, James, he's a he's an incredibly accomplished composer. He's, yeah, his I mother think. was very important in – she's suing. Oh, you're thinking about Frank, Bruce. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so this is James Eakin. He teaches at Centenary. He's, you know, he's – He's had his originals play at Carnegie Hall. He's an award winner. He makes money doing, you know, uh, composing for commercials and stuff. And he teaches at Centenary. And he loves scoring movies, you know. And so, like, I've had the benefit of his incredible talent, you know, for my last three movies, you know. And he just steps in and just destroys it. And, you know, is a Shreveport native, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just they're raising his family and teaching his classes. And he goes into his multi-million dollar, you know, uh, uh, recording studio and then comes out with these amazing scores and stuff. Uh, and he does it because he likes it. We may need to bring him on the show. You may have just given yeah. up a, a potential. This is how we find guests a lot of time is, you know, one person mentions somebody else, so we might bring him on. Steven, yeah. who is the, He's fantastic. Who was the silent filmmaker that started in Shreveport? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Arthur Lee Kahn, who we think is the first Louisianan to script for the movies, he got started with some really very minor company, and eventually by 1908, I think, or 1910, he's going to work for the Edison Company, which was in those days the big, you know, the big producer on the order of the Sony Pictures today. And he had been a Broadway scripter. He had written, I think, around 100 or more Broadway comedies, which would today be more like a sitcom. But he had written a bunch of scripts for Broadway. Uh, he didn't. He didn't want to do that because he realized that the coming thing. The guy was really forward thinking. He realized that the coming thing was the movies, and this is right at the dawn of the 20th century, if you can imagine. So this is a little over 100 years ago, and so he had given up his job as an attorney. He had been an attorney, 
uh, and trained down at Tulane for his undergrad and his law degree, both, come back up here, doesn't like the law, and he skips out to go to, you know, write um, uh, Broadway scripts, comedies. And when he gives that up, he decides to go to work for the movies, goes to work eventually for Edison. By 1917, he's killed in a car crash out, I think, in L.A., an early, early car crash. He was, you know, a victim of the thing. And his, he's buried in Shreveport. In one of the old cemeteries over there, you can go find his grave. But yeah, we think he's the first one uh, to work, you know, Louisiana, at least to work uh, not not in film per se, but working, you know, writing scripts. Mm. So the guy, the guy also even had a very crude, uh, but yet, you know, kind of insightful of uh, uh, film theory. And this is, you know, from the say the first couple of decades of the 20th century, he was fiddling with the idea of, you know, theory of film. You know, what film was, what it did, what it could do. Uh, why was it significant, et cetera? I mean, the guy was pretty, pretty talented, quite frankly. But he, he wrote, or his real name was Arthur Lee Kahn, and to avoid anti-Semitism, he switched, he inverted his name so that he became Lee Arthur. Uh, you know, to write his scripts. Was trying to again, he's trying to avoid anti-Semitism. But yeah, he would, he would mention Shreveport in his work when he would come out supposedly on stage and on Broadway uh, in the probably before the 19-teens even. It was in the aughts. He would come out on stage, and he would uh, mention that he was from Shreveport, or they would ask him even in newspaper interviews. He would always brag about being from Shreveport, and he had family still in Shreveport. But, yeah, he's buried over there, I think, in the old one of the old Jewish cemeteries maybe. But anyhow, he is buried in Shreveport because a friend of mine actually sent me a photo off a of find a grave of, you know, of his headstone. Hmm. And he's well, large. Yeah, we've met one or two people who know him, but they only knew his name. It was a couple of historians at Tech, and they had heard of the guy. But nobody knows much about him. And I, there was a film of his online, uh, actually on YouTube, for the, for the longest time. I think I was able to get a – somewhere or another got a script. There was actually a script for the thing, so we were able to get it, and you know, it may be sitting in our box somewhere. You well, know, it right. has those cards, so <laughs> you can – Take down what the cards have. Yeah, you'd uh, have to, yeah, yeah. You'd have to do a transcription of the thing. Right. Inner titles are called. But yeah, I mean, um, the guy's forgotten undeservedly because what he was doing, particularly writing those comedies and eventually writing screen comedies, he's a pioneer of the sitcom. If you look huh. at the structure of those things, they last about twenty to thirty minutes. They were shorts, so they would be around a two reeler, maybe a three reeler. That's just, that's today that more. You know, within a couple of generations, that'll morph into the modern sitcom. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. One of his surviving films was called Black Eyes, and it was about a, a case of misapprehension in a, a young married couple. And it's actually, it's very light entertainment, but it actually holds up. I mean, it's entertaining. I, I've seen the thing online, on YouTube, and it's one of his surviving, you know, films. And I think it may be one of the Edison films. Hmm. So, um... Would you like to talk a little bit about uh, what's forthcoming? Where can people find you uh, um, in addition to your Christmas stuff and your Halloween stuff? Sure. Well, I uh, I wrote a movie last year that's playing on Netflix right now called, uh, you know, the, the American Pie movies? Uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I wrote a movie called American Pie Girls Rules that's playing on Netflix. Uh, oh, that, heard that of that. That last year. Yeah, um, and that was just on the head and make you know because it was they were such bro movies you know yeah totally 
Totally. So uh, I, I did that, and I acted that in a, in a small part, and uh, I just did a guest star on a new show that's coming out on Paramount Plus called uh, Wolfpack that stars uh, young uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, so that should that comes out in December. Uh, really? Tell us yeah. more about and what what is it? It's a spinoff of uh, from the TV show Teen Wolf uh, that was very okay, yeah. popular. Yeah. And uh, it's a new show, and I really can't tell you much about it except for uh, stars Sarah Michelle Gellar, and I did a guest star on it. <laughs> really? Cool, cool. So is she Buffy again, or is she a different character? This time? No, she's a, she's a different character, but she's still fighting evil. <laughs> well, That's Buffy, the way to do it, man. She's going to be fighting evil her whole life. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I would love a reboot of the Slayer universe, you know, it's like, Someday somebody's going to have to make that um, because it just you know there's so so many it's got such a big fan base even to today you know there are rewatch podcasts that um you know from these really tight communities that uh, you know they all watch it together and then look, tune into the podcast and and um, yeah. Well, didn't somebody reboot the thing as a comic? I want to say they did, like for another. Oh yeah, season. they had comic books, and it was the future seasons. Like, uh, what was the last season? Season seven. Uh, so then they came out with season eight comic books, and season nine kind of keeps the thing going. I never got any of them, but I'm aware that they're there. Um, right. And I'm old enough. I did watch the first run as it came out. Like, uh, it was a pretty big cultural event. Um, I was worried I would have last week's hair. <laughs> yeah, Josh Whedon, I know people gripe about him now, but he's a genius. Um, and I'm not sure if you get to be the level of creative creator that they do without having some personality quirks, you know? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I He's a very talented person. It's a shame how everything came out. It's like uh, every so often something will, um, you know, there'll be a, a wave that sweeps the country, and the, uh, there's some really bad characters that, you know, generally set the ball rolling. And then by the end, you're, uh, you know, uh, getting people that just yell at their staff. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Every job I've had, well, not every, well, yeah, yeah, every job I've had, including teaching English, I've had a boss that yelled at me at some point. Um, I, I guess you probably have too. Well, sure, in the in the movie business, absolutely. There's, you know, lots of uh, different human <laughs> beings in, in, in the movie yelling. <laughs> I mean, we could start with, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, who's never, you know, suffered fools, you know, he's <laughs> been aggressive his entire career you know uh, i think that yes we uh issues are a little more complicated than that but yeah. like certainly we've got you know um yeah it's a very high stress environment and uh you know i've been guilty at snapping myself you know um, well a 22 week one hour really 42 minutes but you know one hour uh on the tv um series is a killer of a grind you know everybody's working 12 hour days um at uh, least i did, the show i just did they were working 16 hour days yeah and i've heard people say that they, you know 
Blast, what was it like to record that scene? I have no memory of it. I was so tired, my brain wasn't processing, right? Um, and so I'm sure everybody on set was a little best, a little less than their best at some time, right? Because um, <laughs> you're just so tired, and it's 3 a.m., and why did we do vampires? You know, a, a lot of the vampire shows will have some kind of magic thing where the vampires can go out in the day. And, you know, it's just very practical so that we have 24 hours to shoot in rather than 8 to 10 hours at night. Right. Well, you know, like Getaway, the the, the film I just told you about, we, we shot that uh, almost all at night in Virginia. And uh, there was we were getting ready to wrap up. We had three days left, and we got hit with a massive snowstorm. Oh, um, shut down production completely for two days. So, wow. and then we were, we were losing everybody. It was right before Thanksgiving, so we were losing everybody on the like the day before Thanksgiving, and we right. couldn't extend. So I didn't think we were going to be able to finish the movie. So we ended up doing a you know, very tiny crew, like literally me and uh, my director of photography, and we. I spent the, those two days scheduling to try to get the actors in and out and so they could go and sleep and come back and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the DP and I did a 19-hour day to finish the movie. And, oh, my uh, God. Yeah, it was insane. And we, you know, I remember being up at, like, hour 16 and being like, well, this movie's just never going to come together and it's, you know, going to be <laughs> a disaster. And uh, now looking back at it, I don't remember a lot from those you know, right. days or whatever it was, but um, but the movie came together beautifully and then sold to a company called Gravitas, which I was, you know, uh, at, at the end, I didn't know if I liked it or not. And now it's like, <laughs> I think it's a very charming, scary, sometimes funny, you know, uh, uh, horror film. And uh, like, it just goes to show, you know, you, you never really know. You, you, you do your best and you try to pull it all together. And, you know, it, it worked out. So I'm, I'm very proud of that movie because this blood, sweat, and tears is not an exaggeration. Oh, yeah. There's, uh, I mean, used to, what did they call those six episode series back in the 70s and 80s, Stephen? Um, um, you know, they weren't a full series, but they weren't a movie either. Oh, like a mini series, maybe? Or? Yes, yes. You know, a mini series. <laughs> Before we got uh, the Calling Unlimited series or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I was about to say, now you have a new thing, which. Addition to the two-hour movie and the twenty-two-hour <laughs> series, they may be eight, ten, uh, sometimes six episodes. It seems like a, especially a big story. Like if you want to make a a novel into a movie, uh, most of the novel gets left on the cutting room floor if it's a two-hour movie. But if, if we're going to do like uh, the Anne Rice thing that's on right now. Uh, interview with the vampire. You know, they can get a lot more relaxed with developing the stories, uh, but it's not the killer 22 episode either, so it's kind of something in between, but seems a little more attuned to, you know, uh, being a uh, kind of novel on TV. Yeah. It's a return, in a way, to the to the early days of of the modern novels, say from the, you know, the 19th century, where novels were serialized in, in newspapers and sometimes in magazines, but usually newspapers. And the 
breaking up of a story like that was meant to entice the readers to come back, you know, each 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 uh, issue in order to, frankly, to buy more copy, right? I yeah, mean, so got to buy every paper. So yeah, so you know, and what, you know, one of the very famous examples of that, of course, is somebody who's extremely well known today, i.e., Charles uh, Dickens, you know, who cut his teeth on writing serialized fiction like that. But there were others too. I think Wilkie Collins, his friend, did the same thing. And other people did as well, but they would again. You know, the more you could drag that story out, quite frankly, the more it compelled. Particularly if it was a good story, it compelled those readers or enticed those readers to come back and read the next installment of the thing. Until finally, after it got published, usually say a year or two or three later, then they would collect it and turn it into a hardback. Well, look at you know series fiction and TV today, whether it's traditional TV or whether it's streaming. You know, you'll have a story arc that runs for six to eight to ten episodes. Well, that goes right back to the serialized novel. That's kind of the pre- the predecessor to that. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> so, uh, have you been watching the, uh, let's play media critic for a minute. Have you been watching the uh, vampire interview with the vampire? Uh, I'm not. The, but I'm no. not. No, I haven't. I, I've been... You know, uh, I've been in a been working. working like crazy. I've uh, literally, the last couple of weeks, I went to Atlanta to sh- shoot Wolfpack, and then I zipped back uh, to Louisiana to do Film Prize, and then uh, promptly got sick. And now I'm sitting on about, you know, uh, <laughs> five emails of writing instructions that uh, I'm supposed to do. So I haven't had a chance to really tune into much, I'm afraid. But it's all for good reason. Work is great. And... Uh, yeah, I'm very thankful to be uh, productive in it. So, um, I wanted to ask you about Wolfpack. Is um, are you going to have some of the cast back from the original Teen Wolf? No, it's an entirely new thing. Uh, it's just kind of on the same uh, werewolf lore, I believe. Right, right. right. Um, I, I believe there's some kind of connected tissue, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. And I know it's an all new cast. Uh, they'll have to definitely be. Uh, what was that game they played instead of football or? Lacrosse. There'll be lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a lacrosse connection. <laughs> Those fierce lacrosse games, man. You could take off a, a, an arm playing lacrosse. I didn't know it was so so rugged. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I did like and that's one of those kind of limited sim, um, number of episodes. I think 10 a year or something like that. You know, it has to be a lot easier on the cast and crew. Um, and it's more like you can tell a an arc of a story better. Like in the Buffy world, they would have these arcs, but the arc stuff would only show up for maybe 10 of the 22 episodes, and the rest of them were like bottle episodes that stand on their own because they just had so much to do. You couldn't drag out the arc uh, for the full you know, number of episodes. It, it would just be impossible. Yeah, you know, I think it's. I honestly feel like it's an improvement on network TV structure. Yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. you know you don't need the filler shows. You know, it's like tell the tell the story. You know, and nobody needs a Hurley episode. Of, you know, in every TV show. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a waste of everybody's time. Um, <laughs> right. I, I, I like that there's not a designated number of shows that are necessary to, in order to tell a you know story. But of course, we you know ruin it anyways by watching them all in the same sitting. So, you know, <laughs> right, right. multiple problems, you know? No, the, the yeah, greatest um, is good at that. They've been doing that for years where you'll have a, 
a series that the writers going in or the creators, uh, some of whom wind up being the scripters as well, but so the creators come in knowing that this series is going to be finite. It's not going to keep on going, you know, like the Energizer Bunny. The thing is going to, uh, they're going to finally drop the sword on it, so to speak, after, say, the third or fourth season. And they won't, they won't produce this huge quantity of episodes. Uh, none of us are old enough to remember this, but before any of us came along, and I'm talking about TV from the 50s, if you can imagine, those uh, particular programs would produce anything from, say, 30 to 35 episodes per year of a show. But that, but that necessitated one thing, and the, the actors would be worn out, at, you know, as you can imagine, at the end of the season. But they had to get a stable of, of scripters or screenwriters to produce those those uh, texts because you couldn't have just one or two people writing those things. You had to have seven or eight or nine people doing it. Well, like, uh, Dot, uh, what was it? Um, Gunsmoke. You know, like one yeah. episode would be with Dot. And so the rest of the cast would only be there either to eat breakfast at the beginning or supper at the end. And so it would give them a break. And then the next right. place it and, you know, but yeah, that, that's when they went to more of an anthology type of, of programming because in the early ones it was about most of the crew most weeks, you know. But if yeah. you look after a certain point, right. yeah, James Arness was kind of transitioning out, and getting tired of it, quite frankly, because you know he did that series twenty years, if you can imagine. I think fifty-five to seventy-five, so he was like an old workhorse. But the rest of them were too. Uh, but what happens with those British series in contrast, like I said, they know that they're going to produce a series that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got a structure. It is finite. And so they will create this thing where it may have, say, three, uh, three, yeah, three seasons, and it's going to be, say, 30 episodes or four seasons at 40 episodes, and that's it. And then they kill it. And so yeah. it looks as, as if, in a similar vein, that's what a, you and a lot of people are doing for American TV. Now, they're producing a series that's going to have some sort of a, you know, a, a, a finitude to it, and it's going to have a, a conclusion. You know, um, look, look at Walking Dead, which oh granted God. has lasted a lot of years, yeah, and it's finally going to be, you know, uh, drawn to a halt this year. You know, with the, I think it's this season. It's going to be the last one. Uh, that's, that's Yeah, I've been with it as long as I could, and eventually it just, too many of the people I like died, and uh, it was like, oh. <laughs> about these people they're new <laughs> you know you, you eat too many of your stars in one of these things so watch out for that in the teen wolf reboot yeah right <laughs> you know teen wolf was kind of bad about killing off uh, or you know some of their characters would leave like i think the main girl that our hero was in love with she left after what second season and um um, or so yeah, um, so but I could see that kind of having um advantage from from your perspective as well. And you have a steady employment, but not overwhelming. It's not just you know killing you for so many weeks out of the year. Right, right. And I think the quality is higher if you're not you know. Anyways, that's just me. I know that there's a lot of people disagree, and uh, certainly the money on the the network shows is, uh, you know, the, the residuals and whatnot on that are uh, that's a whole other argument. You know, um, the the streaming shows just don't 
paid residuals that the network TV does. And part of that is because you have 23 episodes on network and you've got like nine episodes on Netflix, you know? Right. Uh, right. It's just kind of different. But, uh, but I think for the entertainer, uh, sorry, for the uh, entertainment value that, uh, you know, cutting straight to the chase and not, uh, not, you know, trying to hit some arbitrary number of episodes is the best way. Maybe yeah. for the artistic value too, you know, I mean, there are some people working, doing what you're doing right now in, in streaming uh, broadcasting that's pretty, again, it's, they're pretty sophisticated writers, quite frankly. Well, sure. And they're doing stories that there's no other place that you can do those on TV unless if you go to a premium service like HBO, frankly, or Cinemax or something like that, because the rest of them, they're not going to pick up on a series like that. Uh, okay. But you could see HBO picking up on it because the, the story may be more adult or it may be more controversial or whatever else. But you can do that kind of stuff on Apple TV or, you know, Paramount uh, Plus or whatever the thing is Yeah, called. how have the streaming services changed your life uh, for better or for worse? It's, you know, I mean, like there are shows that were weekly. I mean, they're supposed to be watched once a week, like Mad Men or uh, Breaking Bad. If you try to, you know, like binge them, they're so dark. You know, like the universe, they're... They create it so dark it just gets overwhelming. But uh, from your it's end, suffocating. Uh, what's that? It's suffocating. I've heard that yep. as a way to describe some of these shows, you know, and, and claustrophobic too. <laughs> but do you have works that were kind of lost and are now suddenly on Netflix? And so, you know, it's getting out there again. What's that been like for you? Well, for me, it's been great. Uh, for me, it's been, you know, like uh, the – Movies that I've made since streaming service kicked in have offered a platform uh, right. that doesn't allow the movie to disappear. You know, it's like when I made Weather Girl, it sold to Lifetime, right? And, right. And uh, that was a big platform for us, and it was able to, you know, get us out into the world, and it, you know, paid the movie's budget back. When I did Six Month Rule, um, it sold to Showtime for like a – just a part – tiny bit of the amount of money that Weather Girl sold to Lifetime, you know? Um, right. But, but it was very important to us to have that footprint of, you know, the pay cable channel where people could watch it, right? Uh, but now right. it's like my last three films have all sold to streamers, you know, made their budget right. back, been able to find an audience, and, you know, an audience, despite the fact that they pay for a monthly service, feel like they're watching the movie for free, you know? Um, right, yeah. They're like, where can I watch? Where can I watch it for free? You know, it's like if it's not on Amazon Prime, they have to own the streaming service. But it's this really neat thing where if they have it, they will watch it, right? As opposed to renting it or you know even just going to the hassle of finding it on iTunes or something like that. If they're they're there and they're scrolling and they like Christmas movies, they'll watch it or they like. It's on Tubi. I'm I'm looking. I just looked it up on Google, you know, to satisfy my curiosity. Because I have Tubi actually on my phone, and I'm looking, and here he is right on Tubi. You can watch now for free, it says. What is it? I... What movie is that, Stephen? Uh, Weather Girl. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so and I've, the... I've got some of those other, you know, kind of off-brand, for lack of a better word, cable services like Tubi. Another one is, uh, oh, what's that thing called? Um, Pluto. And, yeah. and they pick up a lot of films. I mean, I, I, and some of them are fairly recent. You know, Weather Girl's a little older, but some, you know, will be as recent as 2019, 2020. Well, so again, and you can, I've, I've been working for, you know, a, the better part of 20 years, you know, in this industry. 
any of those things you can just put my name in and you'll see anything that I've worked on that's on that platform. Right. Um, and it's usually pretty extensive, you know, yeah, no. um, which is a great thing. I love that. I love the, the, the one-stop shop being able to, you know, have as much of your work available to people as possible. That's the biggest fear of a filmmaker is that your work's going to disappear. It's like, or it's not going to matter. Or it's like you, sure. you did it, you spent all this time and energy and money making a movie, and then it, like, you know, dies on a hard drive somewhere. Um, oh, yeah. That's what the streaming has done for me, is a, a direct, uh, immediate response thing of your movie being alive. Mm-hmm. You know, years ago, it would play at the local theater and then be gone, unless it was something that was wrong with the wind that they would bring out ever so often. But then when TV came along and you got, like, movie channels, you, like, um, you know, I have... Turner started. Classic movies. Yeah, Turner Classic. Right, uh, right, but you have to remember that all of those things are usually set up with the studio system, right? Exactly. There's a, there's right. A, there has to be a sales rep or somebody that's packaging your movie to sell it to HBO or TNT right. or you know, whatever it is. And if you're an independent filmmaker and you have, let's say you have two films, you know, that's, that's a much harder deal than Warner right. Brothers being like, I've got a couple of turkey movies here that nobody cares about. Can we put them on HBO in constant, you know... <laughs> In constant uh, playment. Uh, so it's hard and it's scary because the, the little guy will often get forgotten if we don't have the right support system. And that's that's what's been great about the streaming thing for me. Yeah, and I, I mean, it was a change for us as uh, consumers because, you know, three, four years ago, I was going to a lot of movies, um, uh, especially during the cheap time of the day. And then suddenly there's covid and then also, hey, here's my 75-inch TV with really nice sound. And I'm in my rocker glider. Why would I ever want to get out of it? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, they shut down the videos for a while, in, I mean, the, the movies. And then getting people back, I imagine, has been quite a challenge because we do have these, you know, we got in the habit of straight to um, uh, video on demand um, instead of going to the theater and, you know, we're now trying to open the theaters back up, and I wish them well, but I do think our habits have changed. I agree. I agree. But, you know, and uh, I support movie theaters as much as I can, and I hope that, uh, you know, we'll be able to find some middle ground, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I've heard that the movie theater is one of the last places, at least in contemporary society, where people can come down, uh, come together as a community and engage in an activity together. Right, it's outside of a sporting event. Well, and you know, there's or, or go to a, sporting go to events. Drama. Yeah, yeah. Theater, theater is a big thing too, and like mm-hmm. I, I've loved the theater being open again and being able to go to that, and uh, you know, it, it's such a special, um, you know, group experience. There group. aren't like um, I remember I was much younger, but uh, when the Rocky movies would come out. You want to see that in the theater because people are yelling like it's a real fight, you know, like they get caught up in it and talk about suspension of disbelief. You know, you're just like, come on, Rocky, pull it together. Well, of course he's going to pull it together. The guy is the star, but he's also the director. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, you need the crowd, right? Yeah. It's absolutely right. And, I, you know, I hope that – I. I encourage everybody to go to the movies. Uh, I certainly do. (laughs) 
It's a yeah. fun activity. Again, it is one of those community things that you can watch a movie at home, maybe with your family, but particularly the so-called audience pleasers, like like the Bond films, you know. Yeah. Uh, those are, let's face it, those are much better uh, viewed or screened when you're with a group of 100 or 200 or however, you know, whatever the size audience is, uh, people sitting in a dark room watching the thing unfold on a screen. And you, you know? got the surround sound so that yeah, you're actually, yeah. you know, you're, you can feel the vibrations in your body. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot different than, I mean, some people probably have that at home, but I don't. <laughs> I just have whatever the TV has. So it's pretty good sound, but it's not that. And so, and yeah, there is something different about being in the movie theater, and I hope that never goes away. Um, Me too. Me too. But I'm also glad that we have all these other streaming services, and it, you know they they have just a voracious demand for content, right? So it gives you more places to market your material than you would have had. Yeah, I, I mean, if you have the streaming, to me, it is particularly good for somebody that's too sick to get out, or, or or maybe like Superman when he was without Lois Lane, he seems to get out. But I mean, right. it, has, it has its purpose. Um, but they, they all have a purpose, I think. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, it, it's just going to keep changing, guys. Like, that's just the, the nature of, you know, cinema. It's the nature of technology. It's, you know, and uh, the point is, though, that I don't think content is ever going to be something that we're not looking for. So, you know, I'm I'm hoping that it stays as romantic and, you know, fun as the movie theater. But at the end of the day, it's like I just like making movies. And uh, well, I know there will always be a place for it. Stuff I watched growing up. Um Gunsmoke, The Rifleman, uh, Bonanza, you know, those things, they're on every day somewhere. You know, you can, all that stuff's out there because of so many channels and so many streaming services. You can, you know, I want to record some of these Mayberry things, and all of a sudden your whole thing's full of Because <laughs> right. they come back to back to back, you know. Sure. Let's follow up on this before we let you go here. Um have you thought about uh, just doing like a TV series uh, alone and, and maybe backing away from big screen stuff for a while and working just on TV? Has that ever well, you crossed know, your mind? Or? I mean, it sure has crossed my mind. I feel like, you know, it's, it, this business is more like, um, it's kind of like surfing, you know? It's like you, you catch a wave and you, you know, follow it through to the end. But right. the, it's difficult to create your own kind of wave. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't have... TV experience. Like, I've never been a showrunner in a TV show. Uh, I've been an actor on plenty of TV shows. But, like, it's just kind of a different, uh, you know, uh, ball field, you know? Uh, It's, like, I love that idea, and I'd love to be involved in something like that. But it's also, if someone's calling me over here to write a movie, uh, it's like, well, I'm going to take the job that's writing the movie as opposed to, you know, know, writing a, a book for a for a TV show, you know, when I don't have anybody to really hand it to. And I hope to someday, you know, move into that world, uh, at least for a fun, for a spell. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that's interesting to me. You know, it's like, uh, but like Christmas movies. I never was interested in doing a Christmas movie until I got a call to direct a Christmas movie. And I said, okay, well, let's give it a try. And now, like, you know, I get offered Christmas movies all the time. And that's and, a niche industry. Christmas yeah, isn't yeah. going anywhere. Uh, yeah, if right. you get... I mean, hey, 24 hours of uh, 
Christmas story. <laughs> Which is about to be sequel. I saw that on in my feed the other day, I think on Facebook. Yeah, they're gonna sequel that thing. Oh crap, he's gonna shoot out his other eye. <laughs> I don't know, I just I saw the I saw the um the uh, trailer for it and, and they had a you know, the very last part of the trailer had the guy putting on his glasses. I guess it was Ralphie. Anyway he was putting on his little glasses. So yeah, it's gonna be sequel. So yeah, I mean, um, and that one was a sleeper. I don't remember it being big at the time. No, it lost a lot of money in the theaters. Um, but you know, obviously, it's become a beloved, you know, classic since. <laughs> right. I mean, literally, what what channel is that that shows twenty four hours of a Christmas story? And I'm I have a I like crowds. But I can only be around them for so long before my social anxiety uh, kicks in. So I would leave the crowded living room with all the cousins and kids and grandparents, go back and watch 10 minutes of it. And it doesn't matter which 10 minutes. It's like you can right. just start at any time and leave at any time. Because, hey, it's on for 24 hours. But, yeah, it, it's a, it's one of those things. Um um, <laughs> who would you most like to work with? Movie this is a real, this is a really pressing, this is a pressing question. Who would you most like to work with? What, what director, what actor, etc.? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, my favorite directors are like Martin Scorsese and the Coen Brothers, and you know, that would be amazing. Um, and you know, geez, actor-wise, there's so many that I admire. Uh, Robert De Niro would be something really cool to do. What? Um, Mark Carmen's a big name. Uh, Mark, he, my guys, and Mark Carmen's great. Yeah. yeah, I did. Uh, I did an episode of NCIS a million years ago, and oh, cool. he was very kind to me. And uh, the uh, director had given me some kind of bad direction, and Mark, Mark was like, "No, that's a bad idea. Don't tell an actor to do that." And then he, you know, told me that I did a good <laughs> job or whatever. And then when I hired him for Weather Girl. Years later, he was like, well, it's great to see you again, Blaine. He's like, we worked together on NCIS. I'm like, you don't remember that. Get out of here. Yeah, right. He's playing too, though, but a real gentleman, a real great guy. He's exactly like Special Agent Gibbs. If you ever want to know what Mark Harmon's like, it's Did he ever exactly pop what he is. Head? I, I need to get a video of him doing that to me someday. Um, figuratively, <laughs> he did. Figuratively and metaphorically, he slapped me inside the head many times. But. You know, um, when my cousin was doing um, the Free State of Jones over here in Mississippi, you know, her grandson, uh, Matthew McConaughey, had all the extras and, and, you know, would be stunt personnel lined up in a row. He was only going to hire a, a few of them. I think it was maybe only two or 300 of them. And he's going down the line and, and essentially, uh, uh, you know, cutting people out for the most part. So he stops in front of my cousin's grandson, who's this big bluff kid, I mean, I'm 6'2". He's probably an inch shorter than I am, but he's a lot bigger because he played football uh, up in the CFL for a time. So he's really bulked up, and he had a nice, uh, hefty beard, so he was looking, you know, appropriately, you know, period correct, you know, for the film set in the 1860s during the Civil War. So he looks at my cousin's grandson, he says, I like you. And he said something else, you know, some little chit-chat to him. He said, what's your name? And so Ken told him his name. He said, okay, you're hired. He hired the guy on the spot, you know, so ever after, my cousin's grandson is going to be, you know, a real fan of, of Matthew McConaughey because he gave him this, you know, kind of a big-time stunt job. Sure. No, that's great. And Matthew has one of those authentic accents. It's very Texas. Um, when he did True Detective, they worked it in by just 
they didn't try to get him to try some fake Louisiana accent, which just grinds my nerves. But, you know, he's a guy that moved over from Texas to be a cop here. <laughs> you know, it worked really yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so talk just a bit about how you go about coming up with script ideas and are there rules for, you know, like uh, if I want a two-hour movie, I need a fifty-page uh, script or something like that. How, do, how does that work? The mechanics. Yeah, there, there's tons of rules. You wouldn't believe the mechanics that go into a screenplay, and you know most of them are about things that we as an audience don't realize that we already know. Um, things that you know, if the inciting incident doesn't happen by minute fifteen, then it starts to drag. You know, right. it's like they, these are just things that we as viewers have subtly gotten used to. It's like so many other things, like shooting on digital video, we do all of these technical things to make it look more like film because we're used to film, um, and that's what we think of as cinematic, right? So right. There's, there's lots of what I call load-bearing you know, pillars in a screenplay that have to be there to hold it up. If you want a two-hour movie, your script needs to be you know, at least uh, 90 pages, but usually 120, you know? Um, and, you know, there, there's lots of, there's art, but then it's also a script as a blueprint. It's a blueprint for building a movie and that any member of the crew can look at and from their vantage decide how to accomplish it. Um, so, and yeah. then there's, a, you know, to decide what to write is usually just like what you're inspired by or angry about at the time. Yeah, and so much of it would be so artificial to us, but you have to make it look natural. But I'm going to walk to this spot and turn that way and say this stuff because you need to be in the light. You have to have the camera on you the right way, uh, all that. And the person you're talking to may not even be in the room. <laughs> well, you know, the uh, the old adage is that the movie is made three times. It's made when you write a script and then it's made again when you shoot it, and then it's made for the final time in the editing room. And these are all different artistic pursuits. They're all completely different. Like the, the screenwriter shouldn't care about what the light is going to be on the guy, and, you know, whether they're going to have to shoot the thing separately or not. And the, you know, filmmaker shouldn't be worried about, you know, keeping uh, this, this, the script is not the most important thing now. It's like if the script doesn't make sense coming out of this actor's mouth, then we need to change the script, you know? Right. And, right. And vice versa, the editor shouldn't care what either of those people intended to accomplish. And they should be aiming at making the best possible movie with the tools that they have. Right. Which is the footage, right? So no, you know, stick, stick to your mitten, to use the old expression, stick to your mitten. Yeah. <laughs> you do improvisation with your uh, actors, like um, you give them the, the way the character, you know, their character is, but then let them kind of come up with their own words. Like, you know, the card game. <laughs> I can't get that out of my head, dude. Uh, <laughs> well, it looks like way, they were sitting there doing that. In a way they were, you know, but it's, we, we don't, I don't do improvisational, uh, what are they, what do you call like exercises or anything like that. I usually, I give them the script and I tell them, you know, to say it in a way that makes them feel natural. You know, so uh, yeah. that lends itself. Usually what happens is immediately the moment you do that, people start 
cursing too much, you know? Uh, it's, it's just a little... <laughs> you learn about actors. As soon as you say, go ahead and improv, they'll just start cursing more. Uh, right, But, right. like, you know, I do... I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of very funny people and people that are very famous for being funny. And, I've, you know, to not let them be funny would kind of not be using them to the best of their, you know, abilities. Um, so, yeah, I don't... I'm not Shakespeare. I feel like I'm a good writer, but I feel like usually the best lines in the movie are made up by the actor on the, on the day. And then I put that in the movie and I get to take credit for it, which is just fine so, by me. Yeah. There was a famous one in American pie where Alison Hannigan was about to have sex with the, the American pie dude. And she says, say my name. And they're doing it over and over. And finally on one of the takes, she says, say my name, bitch. <laughs> in the movie, uh, but you're right, they start cursing. Or <laughs> yeah. I never thought about that. Truism. Well, we've been going for a little over an hour and a half. Um, did we not talk about anything you'd like to talk about? No, I'm, I feel great. I feel great. I, uh, I, I have to get back to, to writing. I've got a script that's due uh, next week. To, to Viacom that I'm very excited about. So how hopefully, how do you break through and you know come up with something uh, on a schedule like that? Because that can be uh, for those of us who have had <laughs> some writing, that can be overwhelming. Well, you just have to. It is overwhelming, but you just have to you know uh, take the romance out of it. You know, there's a time right. where it's like I thought of myself as Hemingway and you know wouldn't write unless my mood took me and you know. Uh, lit some candles and got a glass of wine or some nonsense like that, you know. And but then I actually, I actually read what Hemingway wrote about it, and he's like, you know, you have to write every day, you know. And yeah. you look at it as a job, and uh, that gets you through those moments, so you can have the romantic writer moments, you know. Right. But uh, yeah, it's about sitting down and doing it. And when like I was in a job, it's unsatisfying most of the time. I wrote my dissertation over the summers uh, because I wanted to teach it. I taught nine months, and I spent three months writing. And I just would go to my office uh, every day um, and say I'm going to be in this office until I write 250 words. That was because that's a full page. Uh, the uh-huh. uh, some days I would get up to a thousand, but some days it would be 4:30 in the afternoon. I've got like 10 words and I have to turn something out before I can go eat supper. <laughs> right. That's a good idea with the with this, the carrot and the stick kind of drive. Yeah. <laughs> Your reward is you get to leave. So come up yeah, with right. something. Uh, exactly. You got to get, get Batman out of the water or something. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been so nice getting to know you. Yes, yeah, it's been a been a great talking to you guys. Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me on. I look forward to seeing more of your stuff and seeing you back in Louisiana more to film it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would love that. We do love our local film industry. Like I say, um, I, I believe it. You know, it does a good service for the state, letting people know what we're about. Especially a well-made one like um, the new Anne, or it's based on Anne Rice interview with the vampire, but they departed quite a bit from it and uh, set it in the Storyville era of New Orleans, and they bring in a lot of stuff with Creoles of color that 
wasn't really in the book so much, but I like what they've done with it because they actually, you know, dug into the history. Um, and I like the shows that respect the history, like Treme. I don't, did you ever see it on HBO? Yeah, I did. Good channel. Yeah, it's great. It's also really hard to watch. I've been trying to watch it again and I just, you know, it's it's about the aftermath of Katrina, and it's a great show, but it's so damn depressing. <laughs> right. right, no, I agree. I have to be in the mood to watch it. Can I watch one of these episodes tonight? Uh, no, I'm going to watch something fun, like reruns of Chuck or something, you know. But <laughs> right, or or losing Lois Lane. If, if maybe watch maybe that, losing Lois watch, Lane. Then catch the other stuff on the other services, but. Uh, that's a great start to your career. I, uh, I think, you know, it holds up. It's what, eight, ten years old and, uh, oh, more than that, more than that. Yeah. So keep up the good work and we appreciate you. And, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. We really, really appreciate you today. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. You have a great day. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, Bye. Bye. I want to thank Blaine for coming on the podcast and chatting with us over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we really appreciate the work he does. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the more stuff we can get filmed here, the better. It's good for the economy, but it also is good to get Louisiana, um, you know, recognition for our cultural distinctiveness. And I think we've done a lot of that over the during the course of our working on this anthology, we've watched the state uh, mostly try to bring this business in, and uh, I'm sure they're doing most of their jobs, but for me, the cultural thing is important, too. Absolutely. Well, and it also, I mean, it does give our people uh, a creative outlet, you know? Yeah. Um, because we have, you know, our friend Monty Russell has pointed this out, and this just applies, he, he's applying this to music, but you can apply it to theater as well. There are some very talented people here in North Louisiana, but really across the state. And I mean, Blaine, I think it's mostly working up here when he comes back. But you know, you have very talented actors, um, musicians, composers, etc. that are across the state of Louisiana. And people like him are really doing a service, I think, by, you know, trying to employ, again, a lot of of local creative talent, you know, to come on their projects. I believe their clout is greater than your their numbers would lead you to expect because um, because we have an active um, um, movie industry up here, in, uh, especially around Shreveport. Uh, well, that meant Shreveport would pass a, uh, a a protection for LGBTQ people in in the city because they wanted that business. Uh, That's right. Know anything about the history of Shreveport? This is just a remarkable turnaround. Uh, and uh, I know there's some people here, but, you know, they really are, uh, like, they punch above their weight. That's what exactly. Yeah, I mean, our friend Lamar White says that, yeah. Uh, the, the whole state does, because, again, we're not a, a small state like a Rhode Island or, you know, um, New Hampshire or, you know, some state like that, Vermont, et cetera, Maine. Uh, but we're not a big state, and I'm talking, again, about numbers and not geography, but we're not a big state even like Texas, which is both geographically huge but also numerically large. Uh, right. Not like that. Uh, but we're, we're, we're a medium-sized state, but we're, so we're kind of like a middleweight boxer who's punching as a light heavyweight almost. 
Well, and culturally, we can go toe-to-toe with any state out there. We've got so much culture in this state. Um, and, um, you know, you think about the music, the food, the buildings, um, the, uh, what else, um, dancing, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, art, um, you know, just a bunch of interrelated uh, artistic schools and and uh, you know, people have come around from around the world to watch people do trigonometry or you know balance the spreadsheet. They want to see that cultural stuff in Louisiana. That's what brings them in. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we're seeing that uh, as we post this, which will be you know tomorrow. We're recording this on Thursday night, and we'll be posting it tomorrow night on Friday. And this weekend, uh, LPB will will premiere that document. Is it a two part documentary? But it's that thing about Louisiana, uh, why it's not like Mississippi or anywhere else, yeah. or something to that effect. Yeah, the old uh, lieutenant governor. He, uh, yeah, yeah, Jay Garden, my my cousin's old classmate from from Baton Rouge, uh, Baton Rouge High School before it became a magnet. Yeah, we need to track him down and get him on the podcast. He's an interesting guy. Well, and yeah, he really, he really does he really does reveal the state culture. I mean, he. You know, unlike, I mean, I, I grew up in Baton Rouge, but he's actually from Baton Rouge, you know, and he's lived there, I guess, pretty much all his life, and he really does revere the real uniqueness of Louisiana, you know, the whole state. Yeah, there's a map that shows regions of the country that have kind of a cultural cohesion, and it's kind of like an Easter egg, you know, big stretches of areas in different parts of the country, but there's a deep purple, which is just right down there in South Louisiana, nowhere else. You know, it's just unique. Um, you know, and uh, um, and most of the stuff that developed here was really not for the tourists. Uh, you know, the Mardi Gras was something New Orleanians did for themselves. And it's just, it's a great party, so people started coming to it. But that's not why they did it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of that reflects the the old French and Spanish and later you know yeah. African cultures that you know began to populate the state and eventually North Louisiana the, the various people groups that began to populate up here like like the you know when we went to Germantown as a good example uh, went to Menden and they turns out yep. they celebrate that that what is it a German style Mardi Gras or something is the fascist almost like fascism but it's not uh, fascine or something uh, German Mardi Gras. But yeah, but it is a legacy of that, of being a yeah, it's a legacy of that being a German settlement, you know. Right. Uh, so North Louisiana is not at all this homogenous, you know, sort of collection of, of, of communities and towns and cities up here. I mean, it's it has its own uniqueness. Uh, yeah. Very different in multiple ways. Very different from South Louisiana and, and really from say a lot of Mississippi and Arkansas too. Right. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank Blaine for visiting with us these past couple of weeks. Uh, once again, if you see his films uh, you know, coming to a theater or if you happen to see them maybe streaming online, do try to watch them. But also do try to support the work of our Louisiana uh, filmmakers uh, and other creative, you know, uh, creative people like, as I mentioned, like composers, um, artists, artists. Uh, screenwriters etc because they do need your support but i think you'll really find you know supporting their work watching their films listening to their music etc to be a really rewarding experience i uh, do tell your friends about their work too because again the more people 
that begin to support the work of, of the creative types and the, the, frankly the wider the reach of those cre- uh, creative types will be- become so again uh, thank you Blaine for, for joining us uh, this week and last week as well we want, uh, want to thank all of you for listening in and we hope you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast bye for now